Good morning. Uh, it's wonderful to be here, and I appreciate the invitation. Uh, Paul Johansson used to be my pastor for a number of years, so I know him well. And uh, as he mentioned, I also have taught a number of people here. And I've also known a number of people who have attended this church over the years, as well as presently. And um, it's wonderful to, to that the fact that you're downtown. This is a historic church that is strategically placed close to the university and downtown. Many churches move to the suburbs, but we need the witness of the church downtown. So I'm glad that you're here and that you've stayed here. So that's uh, wonderful. Um, I brought some props, so I'm going to wear one of the props. Uh, this is a prayer shawl. It's a Jewish prayer shawl that I bought in Jerusalem in the old city. And it's something that um, mostly men wear, but also some women wear. And this is made um, for a woman particularly. And uh, you will see uh, the reason it's made for a woman is that you have the Hebrew names of the matriarchs on all corners. So you've got Sarah, Rebecca, uh, Leah, and Rachel um, surrounding on each corner uh, of this prayer shawl. And I'm going to use this prayer shawl as part of an illustration in this sermon, so I'm going to wear it while I'm uh, preaching uh, this morning. Now, your summer uh, series is, What is the Spirit Saying to the Church? And that's a very good question. What is the Spirit saying to the church today? And a related question is, are we listening to what he's saying? Maybe that's a harder question. Because God is actually always speaking. But the question is, are we listening? Are we hearing and then doing what he is saying and asking of us? And one of the primary ways that God does speak to us is through his word, the scriptures. And so today I want to share from one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 16, what God has been teaching me from this psalm that has become very important. So I hope to share that with you today. One of the things about this psalm is it talks about how we can live faithful, steadfast lives, joy-filled lives with God as the center. It's a psalm that expresses confident trust in God because the psalmist has put God as the center of his life. And this is, of course, a very important message for us today because we do live in a world where God is not in the center of people's lives. In fact, uh, he's not even on the periphery. People are not paying attention to him. Um, but God is calling his people to prioritize God in their lives. And this psalm talks about fixing our eyes on the Lord. That we would, as we fix our eyes on the Lord, as he becomes the focus, then we're able to endure difficult challenges in life because this life is full of difficulties. Um, but as we fix our eyes on him, he helps us to be able to stand through those difficulties. And that's why I have um, entitled this message, I have set the Lord always before me, after verse 8. But I'm going to go through all the verses together. So you can follow along in your bulletin, the text that we read together today. The psalm begins with a petition of protection. Preserve me or guard me, keep me safe, for in you I take refuge. 
Now, if you pay attention reading through the psalm, you'll notice that the psalmist is addressing God directly in using the pronouns you or your throughout the whole psalm, throughout his prayer, confessing his trust in the Lord. In you, I take refuge. Here he expresses confident trust in God's protection because he finds refuge in God. Now the question I have is, what does it mean to find refuge in God? The concept of refuge means protection, safety from something or someone, protection from the storm or perhaps an enemy. Maybe the psalmist is looking for physical protection. Or maybe it's a different kind of protection. Perhaps he is asking God to protect him from temptations of the world. In fact, in verse 4, the psalmist chooses not to join those that follow other gods. And perhaps he has been tempted to do so. He chooses to find refuge in God and nowhere else. Now, the concept of God as refuge is equally relevant in our world today. As you know, we live in a very volatile world, a world of unrest and lots of war and struggle and pain and sorrow. As you hear the news each day, the unrest in Ukraine, the unrest in Israel and the Gaza Strip, in Syria, in Iraq, Libya, Africa, so many places. And sometimes we just get overwhelmed by hearing about all the unrest. And it's in times of those times of being overwhelmed that we need to be reminded that we can find refuge in God alone, that our true security and rest is in Him alone. Even as we continue, and we'll always continue to live in a world of, that's insecure, and so we can join the psalmist and cry, preserve me, guard me, protect me, because you are my refuge. In contrast to those who are tempted to follow other gods, as we see in verse 4, then the psalmist says, you are my Lord, you are my master. He's not just any Lord in general, or someone else's Lord. He's saying, you, again, that second person pronoun, you are my Lord. And by actually using those words, he's actually placing himself in the role of servant, servant-master relationship. As a servant, he's going to submit to the master. He will be loyal to no one else, no other God than Yahweh. And he recognizes that apart from God, there's no good thing. Now, I wonder how he actually can say that. I have no good thing apart from God. In fact, we actually do have a lot of good things in life. Every good thing, every good and perfect gift comes from the Lord. Alvin read that text from James this morning. Um, so everything is that is good is a gift from God. But what the psalmist is really saying that in contrast to the Lord, everything pales in significance, even goodness, because God is the one who's truly good. And so when he's saying that, apart from God, there's nothing good. In other words, God is his everything, his life. 
as we go through the psalm, I actually like us to think about trying to personalize these psalms and see whether we can actually say those words ourselves. Can we say that he is our Lord? Can we say that he is our everything and nothing compares to him? You know, when I think about that question, can you and I really say those words? I'm not sure that all of us can. Not all of us are in that place that we can say those words. Some of us may not even follow Jesus as our Savior, may, may not be Christian. And to become a Christian actually means to declare, you are my Lord and my Savior. And so if you've not done that or never made that commitment, you can actually do so even this morning because God sees your heart and he can hear the cry of your heart. You can say, I want you to be my Lord and to be my Savior. But also for us, us who are Christians, sometimes God is not the priority as he should be. And we also struggle to say those words. I pray that he would open the eyes of our hearts so that we can see that compared to everything else, God is everything and that everything pales in significance. And so that we can truly say by God's spirit that apart from him, we have no good thing because God has given us everything that's good. It's from him. And so as we recognize that truth and those blessings, we find that the psalmist is also recognizing the blessing and the gifts that God has given him through the community of faith. Notice that the psalmist recognizes the gift of God's people. It says the saints, the faithful believers, the excellent ones, in whom is all his delight. One of the beautiful benefits of becoming a Christian and following Christ is that we don't live that faith alone, but we live in the context of community, in the context of the church, the body of Christ, which is a family, life together as a family. And so we actually find support and refuge in our lives through the family of God, through one another. We actually really do need one another. And so we find refuge and support through the community of faith. And that's why you've gathered here today, because this is your community of faith for some of you. Now, this year, I experienced this truth of the beauty and the gift of God's family in a very tangible way. Fifteen months ago, last April, I remember the date, April 3rd, I was playing floor hockey with my students at Tyndale. I love playing floor hockey, and we'd made it into the finals, and we were leading. I had scored the first goal, so it was very exciting. <laughs> and, uh, and we were actually leading, and it was 2-1, and two minutes before the game was over, they tied it up. So we had to go into overtime. And two minutes into overtime, I ruptured my Achilles tendon. And two minutes later, the game was over. <laughs> and we lost. But, uh, you know, I could wrestle with God. Why those two minutes? You know, if we had waited two more minutes, it would be all over. But for some reason, the Lord allowed it to happen. So I completely ruptured my left Achilles, which meant I was on crutches for five months. I couldn't drive my car for nine months because I have a standard and I could not push the clutch. And it meant I had to rely on, the, on people to help me, the community of faith, my neighbors, those who are not believers, 
also were coming alongside and helping me in very practical ways to take me to physio, etc. And it's been a long journey of recovery. I'm actually still going for physio, and it's been over a year now from that. But I'm really thankful, and I took great delight in all the people who came out of the woodwork, so to speak, to help me during this time. And so I encountered God through those people. In verses 5 and 6, we read the following. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. As the psalmist is reflecting upon his life, he's focusing on the blessings of his life, the lot, the inheritance that he has received. And so because of that, his eyes fixes on God, or shifts his focus on God. Now, the language of portion or share, there's actually two Hebrew words used, two different words. Um, these words are often related to the worship in ancient Israel, the sacrificial system of offering portions of the sacrifice to the Lord. You might remember the story of um, Hannah and Samuel. Well, that story begins in chapter 1 of 1 Samuel, where Elkanah, the husband, gives portions of the sacrifice to, to Hannah and Penina and to all the children. And that's the word that's used here in the text, those, that portion that's given. So we see that there is a context of worship implied here. But what's also interesting is that there's some other words used as well. The word lot or inheritance could be translated heritage. This draws metaphorically on the inheritance in the promised land. So the allotted portions of land that was given to the Israelites as they are recounted in the book of Joshua. So you see the line that says, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. That relates to the measuring lines or the ropes that were used to set the boundaries of the land inherited. So we see two things here. Notice that the psalmist says, the Lord God himself is his portion and his cup. But then it also says that the Lord has given the psalmist a lot, an inheritance. And then it says that God holds his lot, or destiny. destiny. That's another way you could translate it as well. You have made my lot secure. The word in Hebrew has to do with grasping a hold of, tightly holding on to us, holding on to our lot, the sense of security that you're not going to fall. And that is why he can trust and be secure. God is holding his lot securely. And because of that, he's recognizing God's blessings, his provisions, the gift of the inheritance. It's pleasant. It's delightful. It's beautiful. It's not the only place in scripture where God is understood as the Israelites' portion. In fact, the Levites, who were priests, who were the ones who were administrating the sacrifices for, on behalf of Israel, the Israelites, they were never given any land in the in, as an inheritance in the promised land. Instead, they were told that the Lord God himself would be their portion, their land their inheritance, their lot. And so that wording is very familiar to a Levite. 
Yahweh, the Lord God, is his portion, his inheritance. Here lies one of the key messages of this psalm, that God's people are called to prioritize God in their relationship with him, to be their Lord and master, and to recognize that he is our inheritance, our portion, our security. Our security is not found in our RSPs or in the stock market, market, as you know, or in our money or our possessions. Our security, that the one that security that lasts and that is eternal, is found in God. These things will not last in the, that we have in the world, the, the treasures of the world. Um, Jesus talked about having a true treasure in heaven that's that's lasting. And because if we have God as our treasure, then we won't be envious of other people. You know, it's very tempting to be envious of people who have bigger houses than we do, or more possessions, or the latest iPad or iPhone. It's easy to be envious. But if we realize that those things are all temporary, that they don't last, then it is easier to recognize the gifts that God has already given us and that ultimately He, God, is our eternal security, our lasting security, and that's the real blessing and gift. So we need to remember these things and be thankful for them. Now, having said that, I know that we go through very difficult times in life. In fact, life is full of difficulties and troubles, and that's part of our earthly existence. It's a reality we cannot escape, and we see later on that the psalmist is very aware of this. He's aware of the grave, of death. Yet, when we're tempted to despair, and we will be tempted to despair, we all will, we need to look at the blessings that God has given us and remember all those good gifts that are from above. We sang some of those songs today that talk about God's gifts, counting your blessings, naming them one by one, counting those blessings to see what God has done. And that's what the psalmist is doing, and that's what we need to do each day. Have you counted your blessings today? Before you got up, or just as you got up this morning, as you're eating breakfast, you probably would get really hurrying, getting ready for things, and maybe you didn't stop to count your blessings today, to give thanks. Well, there is, it's not too late. The day is still going, and you can continue, you can give thanks even now. Now, when I had my injury last year, a friend of mine gave me a book um, that was for, actually, for my birthday, which happened around my injury. Um, it's called 1,000 Gifts by Anne Voskamp. Has anyone read that book, 1,000 Gifts by Anne Voskamp? Okay, there's a few people. Now, she talks about embracing an, an, a lifestyle of what she calls gra- um, radical gratitude, radical gratitude, and to slow down and catch God in the moment of every day, to try to live life with joy, recognizing that what we already have is a gift from God in our daily lives, to cultivate that attitude of, of gratitude in our lives. And this is what the psalmist is doing. So as I reflect on these verses, I also ask myself, what is my lot in life? How has God blessed my inheritance? What are the boundary lines that God has drawn up for me? Maybe you could ask the same question today. 
What has he given you? God has given us all a purpose in life, a destiny, a lot in life. What have we been given and what are we doing with what we have been given? As I reflect on my own life and my own journey, I'm reminded of my Christian heritage. Paul uh, mentioned that I was, uh, well, I briefly mentioned that I come from the Pentecostal church background. That's my background. Um, but two summers ago, I was in Sweden. I don't know if you, you didn't mention I was Swedish. No, okay. That's very important. <laughs> I'm a proud Swede. <laughs> I have dual citizenship, Swedish and Canadian. Anyway, I was born in Sweden, and um, two summers ago, our family had a family reunion on my mother's side. And we went to visit uh, my mother's hometown, which is way up north in the land of the midnight sun. So that we saw the midnight sun up in Lapland, Norland. And, and uh, while we were gathering at this reunion, my aunts and my cousins, we were all sharing about our Christian upbringing and things that we remember and what our um, parents did as well as our aunts and uncles. And I was reminded of the heritage, what a rich heritage God has given me. Um, I was raised in a Christian home, in a Pentecostal home in Sweden, and in fact, on both sides of the family, they were part of the beginning of the Pentecostal movement, which began in the early 1900. And uh, so I was raised with that heritage. Then, uh, at age 10, we moved to Canada, and we moved to Kingston, Ontario, uh, where uh, we um, lived for a number of years. So I'm very grateful for that Christian heritage God has given me. And it's, it has shaped me in a profound ways. But also, I'm aware of the lot God has given to me in terms of my calling to teach. And teaching and writing and research is all part of the gift that God wants to give to the church. And I'm thankful for the privilege of serving in that role. Now, I have to be honest, it's not been easy. I don't find it easy. And there's been many response, um, struggles along the way to, uh, to study and to teach. Um, because this calling comes with great responsibility. If you asked me in high school what I would do when I, gra when I graduated, I would never have dreamed to say I would be teaching Old Testament at a seminary like in Tyndale, in Toronto. I was preparing to study music. I come from a very musical family. All of my family are involved in music, actually, uh, professionally. So I grew up in that context, and I thought that I would do that as well. However, through very unexpected uh, ways, which would take too long to tell you how that happened, uh, the Lord led me into this area. Through actually some family loss and painful times, um, God revealed his will gradually to me over time, and I'm very thankful for that. But in the midst of these challenges and his will being revealed gradually, I found that I have a pleasant inheritance. It's a real privilege to teach, even though it comes with great responsibility. So I ask the question again, what is your lot in life? What's your purpose? What's your inheritance? What have you been given? God can reveal that to you even gradually. Sometimes we don't see things until after the fact, as we look back, how God has led. So maybe you want to reflect on that question today. In verse 7, the psalmist blesses the Lord. I will bless the Lord who gives me counsel, even in the night. My heart instructs me. The Hebrew word there is actually in plural, nights. Every night, or nights in plural. Each night, God instructs me. Even when... 
He has insomnia. He recognizes the Lord's goodness as the Lord gives him advice during the night. I too can relate to this, uh, especially insomnia. Is there anyone who can relate? I don't know, but insomnia is something that we sometimes experience, and the psalmist is experiencing it as well. Notice that he says that his heart instructs him. God can speak to us in the night. And I often pray and ask the Lord to show me, is there something I should pray about? Should I pray for someone while I have insomnia? It's actually a great time to do intercessory prayer and reflection or reading scripture or something like that. Now, two weeks ago, I awoke about one o'clock and the Lord put someone into my mind to pray for that I hadn't thought about for a while and I had not been in contact with her for years. But I really felt I needed to pray for her, and so I did, and then I went back to sleep. And I then emailed her the next day. What's interesting is she responded right away and said, she's really going through a challenging time right now. And then she shared what her needs were, and so I can continue to pray with more understanding. The Lord can use you in the same way. He can speak to you in the night. You may be called to pray for someone in the night. It becomes an opportunity rather than to be distressed about not sleeping, an opportunity to commune with the Lord. And this is what the psalmist is doing here. I have a Christmas album by Allie Matthews. Has Allie Matthews been to this church? Um, one of the songs she sings is actually an Irving Berlin song, as you might remember from the movie White Christmas. And in that song, it talks about when I'm worried and I can't sleep, I count my blessings instead of sheep, and I fall asleep counting my blessings. Do you remember that line from White Christmas? Anyway, notice the emphasis, if you have insomnia, instead of counting sheep, maybe the solution is to count God's blessings uh, instead, to take that opportunity. Now, the psalmist also reminds us that as faithful believers, we need to keep our eyes fixed on the Lord. This will keep us steadfast and help us not fall. Notice verse 8, which is the, the title of the message today. Verse 8 says, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. The word there, not be shaken, can also be translated I will not topple over, or I will not fall. I will not falter or lose balance. I will not um, be moved. I will stand secure. And then in verse 9, it also mentions, my flesh, my body will dwell securely. Now, I have a number of Jewish friends because I studied at the University of Toronto in uh, the program, the Jewish Studies program, and I met a number of friends through that. And as a result, I met a uh, a Holocaust survivor, and she is an artist here in Toronto, and she has painted a beautiful painting that hangs in my living room. And this painting is based on this psalm, Psalm 16, verse 8. And in Hebrew calligraphy, it says, I've set the Lord always before me, because he's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. So when I see this painting every day, I'm reminded of this verse that I need to make God the focus of my life. It's so easy to be distracted. I certainly get distracted a lot. 
There are challenges and trials and worries that come our way every day. And so because of that, I need to refocus my vision every day on God and try to see life from His perspective. One of my favorite hymns is, Be Thou My Vision. And I think we're going to sing that this morning. Be Thou My Vision. The Lord needs to be our vision. We need to fix our eyes on the Lord. Notice in verse 8, the image of having God in front. Notice it says, I fixed my eyes. I've set my eyes on the Lord. He's in front. And yet, the second line says that he is beside me. He's at my right hand. The wonderful truth of this psalm is as we put God first, as we focus on him, he comes alongside us. He comes to our right hand. He's in that place of advocacy. You know he's sitting at the right hand of the Father advocating for us in prayer right now. But we have this picture of God coming beside us, accompanying us on the journey. And it's because he's accompanying us, holding us steady so we won't topple over, so we won't uh, fall. We're not alone on this journey. It's a beautiful picture. And I become more and more aware of this as I have ruptured my Achilles and how I need the steadying support of others, of the Lord helping me. So one of the ways that I that helps me focus on God is to pray with a cross. And I brought this prop today. Um, I don't know if you can see this, but this is a cross. It's called a prayer cross or a holding cross because you're supposed to hold it in the palm of your hand. And this uh, cross is made out of olive wood, and it's from Bethlehem. I bought it in Bethlehem a number of years ago. And I pray with this cross every day as I read God's Word and pray. And it helps me visualize my prayers to help me focus on Jesus, to cling to the symbol of God's grace, that greatest gift that he died for me, that he made a way for me. The other thing I like to do, and I don't do this every day, but I do often pray with this prayer shawl. I have several prayer shawls, and my students uh, get to see them in, uh, in classroom as well. Um, but the prayer shawl reminds me that God surrounds me. He surrounds me with his love as this shawl surrounds me and keeps me warm. I'm not alone as he's coming alongside me. And so it helps me focus to pray with the cross, to pray with the prayer shawl, to recognize that as I focus my eyes on God, he comes alongside and that he surrounds me. Like the prayer of St. Patrick. It talks about Christ be with me, Christ within me, Christ behind me, Christ before me, Christ be, uh, beside me, Christ above me, and all around. It's a beautiful uh, picture of God being with us on this journey. And I need to do this often because I keep forgetting. I don't know if you forget, but I forget, and I need to refocus. In verse 9, it says that if we do this, it leads to joy to joy and praise and continued security and trust. The word therefore connects what follows with everything that has been and said in the psalm. Therefore, therefore, my heart is glad. My heart is glad. As the psalmist makes the Lord his focus, it leads to praise and gratitude and deep joy. And as we have already seen, he expresses that joy even in the night, when life is not easy. 
We get hints of the difficulties in this psalm, both from verse 4, where he's rejected the ways of the world by following those who follow other gods. And as I mentioned earlier, perhaps he was tempted to do so. But we also notice that in verse 10, he's reflecting on his mortality, the threat of death, the grave. Sheol and pit, those words represent the grave, death. But notice, he says, even there, God will not abandon him. You will not abandon me. Again, you will not abandon me. You are there. Even in the darkest valley of the shadow of death, you are there, as the psalmist says in Psalm 23. We are not alone, and we are not abandoned. As I was meditating on this psalm, and I like to meditate on the Hebrew, I was struck by the word that is the word abandon, azav in Hebrew, abandon. It's actually a really powerful word, abandon. It comes with strong emotion. Some of us have actually experienced abandonment by someone or by some kind of experience that's been very painful. It gives the sense of being left behind rejected, left alone, not cared for. Even the death of a parent or a loved one can feel like abandonment, even if though it's unintentional. There's, it's not under their control, but you can feel abandoned as a child or even as an adult. Or you can feel rejected by someone who hurt you. And sometimes we can feel abandoned by God, abandoned by God himself as well. But notice the words of hope in the psalm. The hope in the psalm is that the Lord has not abandoned you and me. He will not even abandon us in the grave. We don't have to fear death because Jesus has gone before us. He's experienced death on our behalf. He's conquered the grave. So even in death, he does not abandon us. What a wonderful truth that he does not abandon us in life or death. God has given us all a beautiful and rich life, yet, as we know, life is filled with sorrow, pain, and heartache. Death, it's all part of life, and suffering is part of the tapestry. In John chapter 16, 33, Jesus said that in this world we will have trouble. In this world we ha will have trouble. That's a promise, actually, that we will have trouble. But then he also says, take heart because I have overcome the world. And then he says that you can have peace. He tells the disciples this so that they can experience his peace. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. But you may ask, if God promises to protect you or me, why do we fall over? Why do we fall? Why do we hurt ourselves? Why did I rupture my Achilles? Why do we have this pain and trials in life? I've thought about that a lot as I had this injury. And in fact, the word to be shaken or, or to topple over stands out to me every time I read through the Psalms. And it occurs quite a bit in the Psalms. I will not be shaken. I will not topple over. I will not fall. I will not be moved. God never promises us that we won't have difficulties in life, but he does promise to be with us. And 
to support us in that beautiful picture, coming along, helping us in our struggles, even in our doubting. During the Easter season, I usually read through the resurrection appearances of Jesus in the Gospels. And in Gospel of John, John chapter 20, 24 to 29, we have this story of Jesus coming to Thomas. Do you remember Thomas? He's often nicknamed Doubting Thomas. I think that's terrible. Would you like to be remembered as Doubting Rebecca or Doubting Peter or Doubting whatever your name is? Um, but we've given him that reputation. But as I was thinking and meditating on, the, on John chapter 20, I noticed that Jesus actually came back for Thomas. You remember, he was, Thomas wasn't there when Jesus first appeared to the disciples. And Thomas doubted that Jesus had been resurrected. And Jesus came back just for Thomas because he came to meet Thomas's questions, to meet Thomas's doubts. In fact, Jesus offered the very sign that Thomas asked for, the signs he needed to believe in Jesus, to see and to touch the nail prints in his hand, in his hands, and to put his hand in his side. Jesus graciously offered to Thomas. He told him to doubt, but instead believe. I don't see this as a rebuke. I used to think of, God, of Jesus rebuking Thomas, but instead, I actually see this as a gracious gift to Thomas. Because Thomas, as soon as he does receive those signs and see Jesus, it dispels his doubts, and he's able to confess, you are my Lord and my God. You are my Lord and my God. Thomas is able to make that confession. And Jesus came to meet him in his greatest doubt and questions. Speaking of Easter, during Easter, we also uh, remember Monday, Thursday, the night that the disciples had their si final supper with Jesus. And the reading for, traditionally, the reading for Monday, Thursday is from Gospel of John, chapter 13, where Jesus washes the disciples' feet. And if you remember, Peter protests and does not want Jesus to wash his feet. And, but when, when Peter protests, Jesus tells him the following thing. What I'm doing, what I'm doing you, what I'm doing you do not understand now. You do not understand now, but later you will understand. Now, the Monday Thursday service happened last year um, just before I had my injury. I had my injury right after Easter. And so I read that verse in a new light, and the Lord used that to speak to me um, when I had this accident that at the time of the accident, I did not understand why this would happen. It didn't make sense. Um, but maybe later I would understand. And maybe never, never in this life I would understand. But, but what Jesus was saying to trust, it was a word of trust. You have to trust me because right now you don't understand. Um, it seemed very bad timing because I was about to lead a study tour to Israel. I take my students to Israel every two, three years or so, and I was one of the leaders five weeks later, and I actually went leading that tour on my crutches and on, in a wheelchair, um, and it was quite an experience. It actually was the most memorable trip to Israel ever in my life. I've actually lived in Israel. I studied at the university there as well, but this trip was unusual because I came with a disability. And I felt like the paralyzed person, the man who needed his friends to bring 
him to Jesus. Do you remember that story? To bring him to Jesus. And I felt I needed my students to bring me to all the places that were significant to my faith and to encounter Jesus in a fresh way. And I certainly have a new perspective as a result. And so it didn't make sense at the time, but I've learned a lot along the way that God is our strength when we have setbacks in life so that we don't have to be defeated. The psalm ends with a joyful tone, a joyful note in verse 9 and 11. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. And in verse 11, you have made known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Deep joy in life is expressed in these words of abundance, fullness, pleasure, delight. All this is found in God's presence as we come before his face. One of my prayers is that I would be a joyful person, that I would find my contentment and joy in God and not in other things. But how does one become joyful? Ultimately, our joy is found in God. In the book of Acts, we read in chapter 13 that the Spirit of God filled the disciples with his Spirit, it says, with joy and with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit wants to fill us with his joy. And as we spend time in his presence, we start to recognize the gifts he's given to us. And as we count those blessings, we become grateful. And gratitude and thankfulness is often tied to joy. We become joyful people as we learn to be grateful and content. Those final verses in Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11, are actually quoted in the New Testament in the book of Acts, chapter 2, 25 to 28. Peter is preaching on, this, on the day of Pentecost, and he preaches using Psalm 16 as one of his texts, and he quotes from this verse, these verses prophetically applying them to Jesus Christ and Jesus' resurrection and ascension. In Acts chapter 2, 31, Peter emphasized that God did not abandon Jesus to the grave or let his body see decay. Instead, quote, God raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you see and hear. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you've crucified, both Lord and Messiah. It is because Jesus has risen from the dead and ascended to the heaven and is sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding and praying for us today, that we can have confident hope and trust and deep joy. We can live lives of steadfastness, even as the world around us shakes. And we too can confess, you are my Lord and my God. I've set the Lord always before me. Because he's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. What an amazing truth that he is supporting us in this life and walking alongside us as we fix our eyes on him. It's because he loves us and has redeemed us and has died for on our behalf. So today and every day, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. 
He is with us on this journey of life. He will not abandon us. May the Spirit of God remind us of these truths today and always. Amen. Father, I thank you so much for your word that is powerful and effective. And I pray that you would speak as only you can speak. And we confess that we do not always set you before us. We don't always focus on you in life. And so I ask you to help us today to take this time and moment to refocus our lives on you and to put you first. We thank you for this truth that you come alongside us in this journey of life and that we're not alone. In your powerful name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.